This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And this is Season 4, Episode 6 of Winning Slowly, and we are going to talk about money, and how it's weird, and how it's hard to move around the world, and in other ways, easy to move around the world. (laughs) Which seems kind of weird that it would be hard these days in our totally the world is flat, hello, Thomas Friedman, there's your reference for the day era. But well, both Stephen and I have bumped into this to a certain degree personally, and lots of other people have bumped into it a whole bunch in the last few years. For all that we live in this globalized economy, It gets really strange and difficult if you want to, say, send someone money in Okinawa, where I have relatives, or if you want to pledge to a Kickstarter run by someone in a different country, or if someone Mm -hmm. wants to support your podcast and say they don't have an American debit or credit card, this is a thing we've run into. Now, it is a little easier these days with Kickstarter because they have a variety of countries' currencies that they've supported now. So one of the original problems was you can only do this in dollars, and if you have an American correspondent or an American business partner is no longer the case. However, it's still a little bit weird in that the maximum amounts that you can make for your top-level rewards are different for every (laughs) currency, and they're sort of pegged to about $10,000 US, which is the original uh, top-level tier. But Exchange rates fluctuate, and so on some <laughs> days, if you want to give $10,000 to a organization in the UK running a Kickstarter, you can really only give them about $6,900 in US terms. Which is kind of weird. Yeah, it's because that's what ten the maximum of the uh, UK is set at 5,000 pounds. <laughs> Which, when the pound was two to one on the American dollar, that was pretty close to $10,000. So, <laughs> But it's not 5, that 000. anymore. But it's the not dollar that. is stronger than it used to be then. Right. And so there's it, – it gets weird and it also starts to, to fuzz my brain a little bit. So at some point during this podcast, I'm going to say it backwards <laughs> and I'm going to say that the exchange rate goes the wrong way because it's just a quirk of how we deal with money is that not all money is equal. And some money is valued more than other money. And, and then it changes how much it's valued relative to other money. And sometimes and it might it be changes. worth more or less or ah. Which is completely bonkers. <laughs> and that's time to go back to the gold standard. I don't oh, mean that. Oh, no. <laughs> We've already lost the thread. <laughs> no, this podcast is over. Yeah. The music at the beginning was. <laughs> But really, it's interesting because for all that the the world is flat, for all that we've globalized, the the flow of money, which has been going on for, I mean, as long as we have had neighboring countries who have different perspectives on how money should be handled. So basically forever. Basically forever. The flow of money has been going on that long, and yet we still have significant issues, barriers between various currencies and various uses of currencies. I'm particularly interested in this because 
because even though America is no longer the imperial force, whatever, the dollar is still what everything's pegged against, essentially. <laughs> I mean, there are dollars, there are currencies that are stronger than the dollar, but we don't say that the, well, I guess if you live in the UK, you would say that everything is weaker than the pound. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they would uh, compare everything else against the dollar and say that they have a stronger pound than the dollar instead of vice versa because the dollar is so ubiquitous throughout the world if you want to do but hey if you live in london or italy and you do do things differently there tell us that would be interesting to know yeah we'd love to know even if it's just the sort of thing where in texas the game versus <laughs> the sooners and the longhorns is called the texas ou game what so it's, silly it's definitely the ou texas game Correct. that sort of thing we would love to know about these regional differences we can only speculate at them right now but it's a pretty pretty good speculation however we we can return to things that we actually do know about uh which is the flow of money through these various american systems and the troubles that the american systems have of pointing money out to other countries mm -hmm. like okinawa yeah so i have been doing this podcast with Stephen for a while, but I also have another podcast I do about the Rust programming language. And over the last several months, people have wanted to support the show. People have set up things via Patreon. People have tried to set up things via Cash.me. And there was actually a, a situation I ran into with someone here in the U.S. who had a hard time with Cash.me much less outside the U.S., because basically all of these systems, at least historically, have assumed American credit or debit cards, and a lot of them have assumed debit cards or bank accounts with direct access. Well, if you live outside the U.S., sort of by definition, you probably, I mean, no strict guarantee, but probably don't have an American bank or credit union account. You probably don't have an American credit card. It's conceivable, it's possible, but it's certainly not the norm or the ordinary course of affairs for people who live in, say, South Sudan, to pick an example that comes to mind because I have a friend who just moved there. Most people there don't have American credit cards. For that matter, neither do most people in Slovakia or anywhere else that's not the United States. In the same way that I don't have a British bank card. It's just not really a thing on my radar. Although so, there are there are international banks. It's true. Global banks like HSBC. HSBC used to be a bank in London and grew and grew and grew and now there is an american arm and a british arm and i'm not sure if they are directly correlated like you can take your american <laughs> hsbc card over to england and they'd be like oh yes that says hsbc on it <laughs> again if you live in london you, you let can us tell know us. yeah but there are international banks that have tried to do some of this but there's a lot of red tape yeah and there's a reason that there's a lot of red tape because Anytime that you start moving money around across international borders, etc. Terrorism. Oh. <laughs> We're off the rails again. We're only seven Any, minutes into the episode. Anytime you start moving money around, terrorism. <laughs> but that is – I mean that is <laughs> – yeah, crime, <laughs> genuinely. I was, I was going for a Jack Bauer moment. Dang it, Chloe. But yeah, crime really is one of the concerns. You end up dealing with questions about money laundering and drug trafficking and, yes, to some fairly small extent, terrorism. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. I'm, I'm – 
<laughs> I'm laughing because it, terrorism is, as many of our American listeners know, a perpetual gambit used for all manner of things, whether or not it actually has a substantial hold in that particular area. We it need more subsidy for these farms. Terrorism! Uh, okay, well... <laughs> I mean, hey, we just had a standoff in Oregon, essentially it's over like true. farms. So it's true. Back on track. <laughs> it's been a week, folks. It has been a week, but we're excited to be here. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> the thing is, when you do start moving things around, things do get complicated, and there are good and bad reasons for some of those complications. Bad reasons have to do with protectionism and wanting to protect your your economy in certain ways that maybe don't make as much sense. And there are ways that you could argue protecting local economies does make sense. We're not getting into the particulars of globalism versus protectionism today, maybe on another episode, but not not this one. But even granting all of those things, there are also a lot of reasons that are basically just legacy, that are basically just to do with ancient and not very well-maintained computer systems. There are things to do with regulatory systems. There are things to do with banks just not knowing how to deal with it well because it's a hard technological problem. How do you know that the money has transferred and transferred to where it's supposed to be and that no one ran a man in the middle attack on you in the middle of the ocean? Cough the NSA, cough. You know, things like this make it make it difficult some of them technical some of them cultural right but what you end up with as a consequence is oh hey i want to support your patreon account because i think winning slowly is great hint hint listeners wow and... there's been a lot of coughing and hinting <laughs> i told you it's been a week Boy. <laughs> but uh you might end up in a spot where you can't support somebody because they only have funding lines that take only accounts that you can't give to. But it also might be an extraordinary hassle for them to set up enough different accounts to let someone support you who lives not where they live. Yeah. Especially if they live outside the U.S. Because, again, most of the funding platforms we're familiar with, at least, are based in the U.S. and centered on the U.S. economy and don't necessarily make good allowances for how other economies are structured or work, etc. Props yeah. to Kickstarter that they're getting on that. But There are other crowdfunding platforms that are focused in other countries. So there I know of at least ones that have existed or currently exist in Spain and Argentina and Italy. So there are others that I'm not aware of. I once was doing research on crowdfunding platforms and found like 200 of them. And oh, so, wow. yeah, there's a lot. And the, a lot of them are very specific. Things like experiment, which is for science experiments. Nice. And some of them which are in other languages. So there are other ways that uh, cultures have adapted to pick up some of these problems. So that is one way that people can deal with some of these issues of crossing borders with money is to just not <laughs> to just take good ideas, remake them in a different place inside a border and not deal with all of the issues that come with uh, geographical oddities and quirks. Right. And that's a particularly interesting stance in relationship to the world is flat thesis that, yes, international business exists. Yes, people fly all over the world to make handshake deals. But in some ways, 
it is easier for the world to not be flat even mm-hmm. now when there is ostensibly internet uh, viability for people to meet from all over the world in real time just happens to be at various hours of the day but in real time it seems like that should be encouraging of a flatter system of money transfer and there have been people who have tried to do it and it just hasn't taken off in the same way that you might expect if you had been watching from the early 2000s now that's not to say it'll never happen you know i'm also not saying that there will be one world currency all our conspiracy theorists <laughs> running for the door right now. but I'm sure I'm so say- many of our listeners are conspiracy theorists. Yo, I'm not limiting. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not hating. I'm just, I'm just recognizing. So I'm, I'm interested in as these technical problems develop, whether they develop to become more structurally difficult as countries fall apart from their – neighbors, perhaps something like the EU um, being less integrated than it used to be, which is a potential Mm -hmm. situation, or whether countries build up their own walls to make it harder for other money to come in, which seems counterintuitive in a lot of ways, except that if you have your own thriving economy and you don't want deleterious effects from economies coming in, again, the European Union, you might want to have an inability of people to put in or remove money and just keep things at home. Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind as analogous to that is the trend we've noted in episodes about, of all things, art, which is when you look around at the global art space, you have, as Stephen pointed out a few weeks ago in our discussion about Star Wars and globalization, you have a few properties that are truly global. You have the Taylor Swifts and Adele's, you have the Star Wars's, you have the Marvels and mm-hmm. the things like that. But what we've also seen, and we noted this in our episode titled Hungarian Folk Music last year, is the ability for local niches to flourish as well as be found globally. And you end up with this complex interplay in things like art between localization and globalization, where you have local artists actually flourishing again, in part because their art can go global. And at the same time, you you have some degree where you have an overarching art world. You have the Marvels and the Adeles and the Taylor Swifts. So everyone all over the world, and I'm being slightly hyperbolic and generalizing here, but for the sake of argument, everyone all over the world knows who Taylor Swift is. There are plenty of people who don't, of course, but an awful lot of people know who Taylor Swift is. Indeed. A lot less people know who your average Hungarian folk music maker is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I can't name one off the top of my head, for example. Indeed. But both of those can flourish in a globalized economy because of some of the same underlying infrastructure questions. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Stephen's example of many localized crowdfunding things brings to mind for me is the idea that we need to be able to support both of these. We need systems that do allow you to kickstart something in England and be an American supporter of it, because that's cool. Maybe someone has a great idea in Norway, and I'd love to buy it from them. And yeah, buy the cost of shipping, because there'll probably be some. Yep. But 
at the same time, there's actually a lot of value in local systems and in increasingly local systems. And one of the things I'm intrigued by in the long term is whether we will actually see increasingly and even possibly hyper-local economies developing. You might notice, for example, that the American government was built at a time when the American population had fewer people than New York City does. So the American economy was built then. And a lot of things we deal with in global economies in general are, as I said about banks a few minutes ago, consequences of our history. And that makes a lot of sense. But as we keep going forward, that will change more and more. And it's possible that you'll end up with New York City having even more than it does today, and Chicago and Hong Kong and Shanghai and all of these major metropolises mm -hmm. having even more localized economies to the point where it's conceivable, unlikely I would say, but conceivable that they might have their own forms of exchange in a hundred years, their own currencies as it were. It wouldn't be weird at the very least to think that you might want a hyper-localized kickstarting platform, crowdfunding platform for your big city because the needs there are different than they are yeah. in middle-of-nowhere America. Right. And I think that there's already some elements where Hong Kong is largely a city that is a country, mm -hmm. right? Like it's – there's already – exactly. So Singapore is already a city-state country. So there's already this sort of – way that we think about large cities that they can be their own entities in a strict geopolitical sense, it wouldn't be weird for these large cities, as you said, to continue to develop in ways that they act more and more independently, particularly as a lot of the rural sections of the area surrounding them become just more and more farmland in fewer and fewer cities. Right Now, that's a trend that is extremely complicated as well that we'll talk about at some other point. But it's not unlikely to think about how the future of the city 25, 50, 100 years looks like when each of these cities are trying to achieve their own particular ends. Right. And where regionalism is just as important as globalism and hyperlocalism is also as important because all of these layers are stacked on top of each other not just in spite of the internet, but because of the internet. Right. So you're able to say, okay, I'm going to go participate in whatever the name of your local crowdfunding platform <laughs> is because A, you know the people, B, you know that the organization that's doing the processing is in the building down the way so you don't have to give your money to Amazon, this <laughs> giant corporate behemoth. And then the people who are going to be receiving the benefit are also going to be in that community. So you can trap everything about the transaction in that community and feel validated in doing so. I mm -hmm. think that's a thing that isn't that far away. I mean, and if you live in New York City with Kickstarter being in Greenpoint, which is part of Brooklyn, which is part of New York City, which is part of New York, you already have this idea that there's a hyper-localization of where I am from and where I live and what I do. Yeah. And the bigger the city you live in, the more you and you can at least end up in a bubble where the only economy that directly affects you is the economy of that city. Now, of course, it that's not ever strictly true because farms and food are kind of a big deal. Right. But And the internet is kind of a big deal too. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. 
And and part of the reason that that kind of feeling even is possible is because of those two things together, that the Internet is a sufficiently big deal that it allows the coordination and the effective coordination of massive economies of scale, including massive farming, that lets you produce enough food in combination with other technologies that we've invented in the last several hundred years mm -hmm. to feed cities on this scale, which is no joke. Right. And so what that means for the circulation of money is that at the moment, it's kind of hard to circulate it. And in the future, you might not need to. There might be at a consumer level, the an amount of services available to people that the use of money just circulates around and around and around in a smaller area. And this is partially because both Chris and I expect in some ways companies to get smaller as opposed to being giant corporate behemoths. We expect that there will be a flourishing of small, local, hyper-local, to use our wording, businesses that serve very specific niches well enough that they're able to steal service from these large behemoths that don't have a connection to the community. But in a different time, it may have been the only ball game in town. Now that the internet decreases the amount of money it takes to start up a business in various ways, uh, and also increases the ability to advertise and to make connections locally and throughout the world, there's a much better chance that someone can say, okay, I'm going to get a, a brick-and-mortar storefront to serve this community with whatever it is, whether it's gravity payments saying we're going to steal off of the very small end of credit card transaction fees or whether it's somebody else picking up some other long tail trend, there's going to be enough of that that you can be hyper-localized. And so you can say to all your people around you, okay, if you have the service that's a giant behemoth, um, maybe in a different country, <laughs> if you're doing this in Argentina or Kenya or wherever, maybe you could do it with me because I live right down here and I'm doing the same sort of thing using almost the same software. And uh, But I like know you. <laughs> yeah. And there's a big upside to that. And that's actually, I think, a hopeful point for many small communities, because mm -hmm. while there are some very big upsides to the increasing urbanization out there, there are. And with apologies to all my Wendell Berry fan friends, there really are good things about big cities. There are a lot of attractions to them, and they're very effective for certain kinds of things. But there are also a lot of really valuable things in small communities and in farm towns and mm -hmm. in communities that our current economic structures maybe haven't favored as much. But I think there are actually a lot of opportunities coming up if we steward our economic resources carefully and we make a point to build these kind of tools in a way that supports the local which we can. I mean, we've just talked about that. There's right. absolutely the ability to do that. If we make a point not only to cater to the mega cities and the mega metropoli that are going to be out there. Right. Now I've said metropolises and metropoli in one episode. Boom. Whatever. Uh, as we make a point to not merely cater to the super city, but also to think about 
platforms that make sense on the local level. That can be really empowering for people, and it can actually allow those small communities to flourish in really important ways. We right. will link some fascinating writing by Craig Maud from some of the design consulting he's been doing in the last year, looking at consulting with farmers in Myanmar. And it's absolutely interesting stuff that's very different from most of what you would read, especially from most design firms, mm -hmm. because they're not doing these big Western projects. They're looking to help people who work on farms in Myanmar, and they're doing really cool stuff. And I think as we recognize that we have opportunities to make those kinds of moves, and as we capitalize on those opportunities, we can take these technologies that so far have predominantly empowered bigger players, and we can actually use them to level the playing field more and to make things better both for the people in the big cities and for the people who are in the small farming community in the middle of Nebraska, which is a great place, by the way. It's not for me because I do like big cities, but I have friends who live in the middle of Nebraska and love it there. And we want to make decisions in a way as we build technologies, as we build funding platforms to so take us all the way back around to where we started, mm -hmm. as we build all these sorts of things, as we think about global economics and money transfer and funding structures, that it, it does well for both, that we don't right. leave people out in the cold. Right. And I think the most interesting thing about the way that money flows now is that due to all of the structural things that you said, both positively and negatively, it enables a sort of future where you can have a hyper-local economy, but you can also tap into a larger international economy if you want to, if you have a service that you can provide over the internet or via consulting or however it is. You can bring the global to you in your hyperlocal economy and bring them into how you're dealing with living in a small city or a rural area. And so you can have all these economies layered on top of each other without having any clash of how the money flows. And so that's honestly the last piece left of this puzzle is how the money flows because we already have the sorts of infrastructure and we already have the ability as chris noted to develop structures that support both megacities and rural life very comfortably so as we start thinking about individual countries and moving money between them and and using technological solutions be it the blockchain or be it some other thing I'm really interested to see and hope that we can continue to develop a world that works for people who hate cities <laughs> as well as ones who love cities. And I think money flow matters to that. Yeah. The music at the beginning of the episode was Solitude by Alpine Glow. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks again to Andrew Fallows and Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. As always, 10% of whatever you contribute goes to the Internet Archive so that we can keep a library of things that have gone missing. I was sharing old pages from the very first things I built on the internet with friends this week and was mm -hmm. once again very grateful that we have the internet archive. It's a good thing, kids. It is. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes or recommend us in your favorite podcast app or directory. 
or you could just tell a friend. Tell a friend. You can find the show notes for this episode with links to the things we talked about, uh, links to the music, and so on and so forth at winningslowly.org slash 4.06. Last but not least, we love hearing from you. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at Winning Slowly, on our Facebook page, or via email at hello at winningslowly.org. We got some really lovely mail about our most recent episode that just warmed our hearts and really made us feel like we are doing a good thing here. So thank you for that comment. You know who you are. And uh, just keep sending us mail. Yes, indeed. And as always, thank you for listening. We appreciate you, listeners. And I'm Stephen Caradini, and this is episode four. Nope. <laughs> I know.